Welcome to Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age, the show designed to help make middle age your prime time of life by defying the notion that once you reach 40, 50, or even 60 years old, your crowning achievements are all behind you. Regardless of whether you're just approaching 40 or are firmly entrenched in your middle years, it's time to launch your very own personal journey toward a joyful and purpose-filled second half of life. Each week, host Roy Richards, an expert on midlife renewal and author of A Midlife Challenge, Wake Up, will discuss the challenges common to middle age and help guide you to a brighter tomorrow. Now, here's Roy. The other day, I came home from an errand carrying a few packages in the mail. I laid my car keys down without thinking about it. An hour later, I needed to go out again and discovered my keys were not in the usual place. I subsequently spent about half an hour searching in all the logical locations, trying to recreate my prior movements. Finally gave up and borrowed a set of keys from my wife. Later that day, I glanced at the bed in her master bedroom, and lo and behold, there in the middle of the bed cover were my keys in plain sight, but one place where I never would have looked. And I'll bet it, uh, if you're a middle age, in fact, of any age, you've had a similar experience with car keys, your reading glasses, maybe even your billfold, purse, or cell phone. Lost things generally turn up sooner or later, but not before significant wasted time searching and emotional turmoil, and perhaps accompanied by fear that you're losing your memory, even experiencing the onset of Alzheimer's. And here are some other embarrassing, even disastrous memory lapses. You run into someone you've met before, you recognize the face, but you haven't the foggiest notion of first or last name or you're making an important presentation at work, one that you memorized and rehearsed, and in the middle you draw a complete blank and freeze, unable to continue, if only you could run and hide. Or you're in a sales meeting with a potential uh, major client, and you can't remember significant features and advantages of the program, of the uh, product, I should say, that you're attempting to sell. And... Uh, Here's a final example. It may apply more to your son or daughter in high school or college, but it could be you if you're pursuing an advanced degree. You walk out of a test frustrated and discouraged because you had mastered the material. You really knew it, but you just couldn't remember it during the test. And what if I told you there were simple yet effective techniques to remember anything in any course or meeting, excel on tests, and remain on text in speeches or presentations without reading from a script, instantly remember names and faces, and never lose your purse, eyeglasses, or keys again. And my first guest today, Ron Fry, is here to highlight some of today's most effective memory-enhancing tactics, and he has just written and published a book titled Master Your Memory. And Ron Fry is a nationally known proponent for the improvement of public education as an advocate for parents and students. He's author of the best-selling series, How to Study, which to date has sold more than 3 million copies. And Ron has written more than 30 other books in areas of education and careers. And he's founder and president of Career Press, an internationally known independent publisher of trade nonfiction books. And hello, Ron Fry. It's indeed an honor to have you with us today on Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age. Oh, thank you, Roy. You know, I, I suspect everybody listening at one point or another could really relate to at least one of those examples, maybe more. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's true. Well, let's begin with the basic. 
Uh, how does uh, memory actually work, and how and why do we remember some things and forget others? Well, in terms of how it works, amazingly enough, we know a lot less than we probably should. Huh. Uh, the brain is far more complicated than sometimes we give it credit for. Yeah. And although it has what seems to be almost an unlimited capacity, in terms of actually trying to figure out where does memory maybe reside in the brain, there's no real answer. There's no one place where scientists have been able to figure out, aha, this is where memory is. So what happens is it all kind of goes in there, kind of like a computer, right? You file everything or you put it in a big four-drawer file cabinet. The problem is when you're trying to find it, you can't figure out where the heck it is. Yeah, that's a lot like my desk <laughs> or something like right. that. Right. You know, you were, talk you were talking about keys. Yeah. On average, people spend 16 hours a year looking for their keys. Yeah, and I'm not even going to try and guess what that turns into if you add cell phones, purses, <laughs> glasses. <laughs> yeah, I solved that problem on my reading glasses. I have them all around the house. I buy them at the dollar store for a buck and just uh, spread them out. <laughs> I'm never searching for those, at least. But, uh, but you know, you did. You said something earlier when you were talking about your keys. That really is the solution for a lot of those things. You said, I didn't put them in your, their usual place. Yeah. And that's really key. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Yeah. But if you have keys and purses and billfolds and cell phones and everything else, and every time you come inside or every time you put it down, you put it in the same place, yeah. then you're not going to have a problem. Yeah, if or for some you, uh, reason, if you specifically remember that you didn't put them in the uh, same place and you have a good reason why you didn't, that would work too, I would think. But uh, Well, if you're not putting them in the same place, what you want to do is literally at the moment you're putting them down, just say to yourself, I'm putting my keys on, on the foyer table as yeah. opposed to you normally put them in the breakfast room or you put yeah. them on the dining room table or something like yeah. that. Yeah. If, you, if you still forget, then when you put the keys down or the purse or whatever, picture the darn thing exploding. Picture oh. the keys just exploding right off the table. Yeah. When you have to remember, you will remember that picture and therefore you'll remember where you put them. Well, surprising to me, in your book's intro, you inform us that we all have average memories. If this is true, why can a champion memory athlete memorize the value of pi to the 70,000 places while I can't recall the names of artists on some of my favorite recordings or other simple facts like that? How do they do it if they're just, you know, everyone has average memories? Well, our memories work different depending on what we're trying to remember. Remembering a grocery list is one thing. Yeah. Remembering numbers is something completely different. Yeah. Remember, remembering how to attach names to faces is, again, a whole other ballgame. The reason that these mem so-called memory athletes can do these phenomenal feats yeah. is they've taken a specific technique to remember a specific thing and they've just practiced it, maybe two or three or four hours a day. Yeah. If you do that with anything, right, playing the piano, learning how to play a sport, if you spend two or three or four hours a day, year in and year out, just practicing one thing, you're going to get really darn good at it. Yeah, that's, that's very true. But, uh, 
So you, then uh, there is no secret. I, I, I guess in your book you say there is no one single magical memory technique that will help us never forget anything or that applies to all different types of memory then. No, but if you have to remember, for example, a grocery list of 20 items. Now, yes. you know, with smartphones made it a lot easier. Why don't you just call up Siri and say, Siri, add bread to my grocery list. Yeah. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with using technology. There's nothing wrong with simply writing more things down. There's yeah. no reason that you have to remember something if you can just write it down. They asked Einstein once about a very, very basic equation. And he couldn't really t remember it. Huh. And they said, how could you not remember this equation? You're Einstein. He yeah. said, I don't have to remember it. I know where to find it. Yeah, that's, that's good. Or he could have said, no, I'm, I'm the Einstein that owns Einstein beg beglaries. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I ate one of those when we were visiting our son down in Texas, but I don't think it was Albert Einstein that owns that. <laughs> But you know what? What I do in Master Your Memory Right is I really talk about the different kinds of things you have to do. Nice. Uh, again, remember a grocery list, or remember uh, a to-do list, or remember uh, numbers. Maybe as a student, you have to remember a whole bunch of chemical equations, yeah. or you have to remember a lot of math formulas. Yeah. All of the different techniques that you would use for each of those things is really detailed in Master Your Memory. What, yeah. And in most cases, there's two or three or four different ones, and you really get to pick what works for you. That's good. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some, of, uh, some more about forgetfulness. In general, what are some of the most common reasons why we forget? I know you made a list of those in your book, and uh, they were very interesting. Uh, one, well, I, I guess, think... is we fail to make uh, the material of the action meaningful in the first place. That's probably the main reason we forget something. But well, not only do we forget to make it meaningful, in some cases we don't even we don't remember it for an instant. The old yeah. it goes in one ear and out the yeah. other. Yeah, uh, that happens, I think, to a lot of people with names and faces. You know, you go yeah. to a cocktail party, oh, you meet yeah. twenty people in five minutes. And I guarantee, five minutes later, you don't remember one person that you met. Yeah, that's And right. it's because you really didn't pay attention. You didn't yeah. repeat the name. You didn't really look at the face. You didn't have any method to attach the name to the face. Yeah. So if we really want to remember something, you know, when I was a lot younger, if I, if I met some incredible woman at, at a party or something, and she said to me, Here's my phone number. Give me a call. Now, I got nothing to write with. It's long before cell phones. Yeah. Do you really think I would have forgotten that telephone number? The more you want to remember something, the easier it is. And the more you're able to tie it to something you already know. I mean, yeah. that's why when you're studying science or math or whatever, if you don't understand the, the first thing, by the time you get to the fifth, you're completely lost. Oh, yeah, that's so true. If you uh, start out lost, you're going to remain lost. <laughs> right, but once you know that first thing and then the second thing, now each new thing you're learning, each new formula, each new principle is attached to those things you've already learned, and that helps you remember as well. Yeah, I like the way you, uh, you say that it helps so much if we tie it to something we already know and uh, also if we don't use the knowledge we've gained 
like if we get introduced to somebody and then we don't talk to that person or have any further interaction with them, we're probably not going to use that knowledge and don't think it's worthwhile even retaining. We'll never see them again anyway, so we don't Absolutely. don't use the knowledge. So what you know, we label great... is, I, I think it's fascinating that what we label as absent-mindedness, especially as we age, is in so many ways just a function of inattention. Yeah, exactly. Again, let's go back to that cocktail party. You meet five people, and they've got five faces and five names. Well, the very first thing you have to do is actually look at the face. You actually have to see that person in front of you. Now, maybe they've got a big nose. Maybe they've got big ears. Maybe they've got kind of a scraggly beard. Whatever you need to do to make that face really more memorable in your mind and we remember things that are weird. We remember things that are strange. We remember things that are really unusual. Yeah. So if someone's got a little tiny pimple on their nose, make it like an old hag's big wart with hairs coming out of it. You're not going to forget it. Okay? And, and then to remember the name, use whatever method works for you. You can use sound alikes. You can use rhymes. You can write it on the person's forehead. But the key is to attach that name to the face. And then say it out loud. Say, oh, hi, Roy. Nice to meet you. Don't be like my my father at the restaurant where he always had to use the waitress's name like 18 times in the same (laughs) sentence. That gets to be a little bit much. But if you repeat the name, if you repeat the name and attach it to the face, I guarantee you'll remember it much more easily. And the key is, we remember the faces. It's almost always the name that we forget. So we just have to learn how to attach it. You mentioned that sometimes one of the reasons is we've known the person in a different context, and then we see them again in the the grocery store or something far away from where we met them before, and and we see, and I know that face from somewhere, but... uh, I guess we don't relate to them because it's a different context than what we uh, met them at. Yeah, exactly. You may see your your kid's, you know, kindergarten teacher every single day of your life for, you know, nine months. But if she's got a second job, maybe working in a grocery store or working in a garden center, and you suddenly meet her there, you know you know her. Yeah. I mean, that because, that's automatic. You yeah. just can't figure out why. Yeah. I, always, I had a case where I had a guy who had been working, uh, doing some painting and stuff for me for just months. Yeah. I saw him every single day. Yeah. Then I went to a wedding, and it so happened he was very, very good friends with the bride. So oh. there he was in a tuxedo. Yeah. Well, heck, I knew I knew him, but I had no clue from where. No paint in the tuxedo, so <laughs> you didn't get the clue. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. But then, well, what are three kinds of memory, and what are some of the ways to strengthen each kind? I know you mentioned three basic uh, types. Well, you, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. You've got short-term memory, long-term memory, yeah, and then you've got visual memory, verbal memory, and kinesthetic memory. So let's start with the latter. Visual memory is really the one that I think most people are strongest. Oh, I see. That's why most memory techniques talk about 
creating pictures in your mind. Yeah. It's much easier to remember a picture than it is to just remember a list of words. I was on a show about two or three weeks ago, and at the very beginning of the show, the host just said, okay, I'm just going to say six words. And she went, airplane, vase, car, dog, kettle, pills. And then she moved on to something else. And 15 minutes later, she asked her audience, okay, how many of you remember those six words I said? Yeah. Now, I remembered them. Of course, I was on the radio. I could have written them down and no yeah. one would have known. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But all I did, all I did was create a picture. Here's an airplane coming yeah. out of a big vase, which is yeah. sitting on a car. Oh, it's yeah. being chased by a dog. <laughs> Attached to the dog's tail is a big tea kettle, and spewing out of the tea kettle are a whole bunch of pills. Yeah, there is no the reason you create, and the, the more bizarre they are, the easier to remember, I guess. Exactly. So, you know, you can have the airplane have a big trump on the side, so you yeah. definitely remember that. Yeah. You know, the car could be a beautiful 58 T-Bird, whatever your yeah. favorite car is. Yeah. The tea kettle could be bright pink or bright yellow. Anything you need to do to picture to make it more memorable is yeah. going to work. And then the other thing, just very quickly, the kinesthetic memory any athlete, any dancer, anyone who moves a lot actually refers to kinesthetic memory usually as muscle memory. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a tennis player. Yeah. When I go to hit a forehand, my mind is not saying, okay, now hold your wrist tight, now move the racket back, <laughs> now look at the ball, right? Your muscles know what to do because you've done it thousands upon thousands upon thousands of times. Yeah. That's kinesthetic memory. Oh, so if yeah. you really have to remember a lot of very strange things, you know, the first one, just raise your right hand while you say the word or, or oh, the right. formula or whatever. Huh. The second one, raise your left hand. You can yeah. go through and do all kinds of strange body movements and remember a very long list of things, no matter how strange or unusual they are. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about memory and aging. Assuming we remain healthy, no Alzheimer's are related. As we progress into our late 50s and 60s, is there a natural diminution of our capacity to remember things? And if so, well, do you have any suggestions on how to overcome it? It definitely gets a little tougher. I mean, I'm of a certain age, you're of a certain age, yeah. and uh, all of a sudden you sit there and you start to think about someone you've known for 40 years, and you yeah. suddenly can't remember their name. Very, very disconcerting. <laughs> okay, so it does happen. I mean, we lose neurons and, the, yeah. and things start to deteriorate, uh, not just bodily, obviously, but mentally. And even though the, the brain is not a muscle, uh, the idea that exercising the brain in some way, keeping it active, uh, is going to help your memory, I think has really yeah. been proven in a lot of different ways. So, yeah. you know, whether it's crossword puzzles, Ken Ken, Sudoku, anything that makes you think, anything that makes you uh, really continue to use your brain, make connections, learn new things, all of those things are going to help you remember more. Yeah, you know, there was an interesting study in the uh, talked about in the Wall Street Journal back on November 29th that said that uh, people in their 60s and 70s perform better on matching faces and names than younger ones because uh, the people, when they get older, they may not... Uh, they may become more easily distracted, but uh, they're not so concentrating on 
specifically what they're doing, so <laughs> there's more creativity there, and uh, sometimes they remember things better. So <laughs> I, I talked about that last week on the program. I think that's a good news for us that, uh, you know, we don't have to resign to uh, losing our memory as we get older, and obviously we need to work on it. But uh, Hey, memory is a very strange thing. How come I can't remember what I had for breakfast two days ago? Yeah. But, but, you know, name a 1950s doo-wop song, and I can sing the whole darn thing. But do uh, you really need to remember what you had for breakfast two days ago anyway? <laughs> no, but you definitely need to to learn all the songs that the drifters ever sang. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, well, how about uh, removing fear from taking a test? Or talk about what our students might uh, want to do. Can you give our students a few tips on reducing their anxiety before the test so that uh, they don't freeze up and blow the test? Well, certainly that's where the difference between short-term and long-term memory comes in. Oh, short-term memory really is short-term, yeah. and you're lucky if it lasts 24 hours. Yeah. So, and And that's really the explanation for why cramming works to an extent but really doesn't huh. if you've managed to cram a whole bunch of stuff in there and you get to the test quickly enough you may just remember enough to pass yeah. but i guarantee that one day later you won't remember a darn thing oh, that's because it's it's been in the short-term memory and it disappears it's like uh, notepad in microsoft you know, it's there for yeah. a little while, but then if you don't use it, gone, you just write right over it. Yeah. And that's our short-term memory. That's why yeah. uh, for the students, it's important they read the chapter also that uh, talking about how you retain more, how you become a critical reader so that it really goes into your memory bank, the long-term memory, mm -hmm. rather than uh, just cramming it in there at the last minute. Exactly. So, it's taking your time, really understanding what you're reading, uh, again, most people are visual. Taking notes in your in your uh, the book itself or on a separate page or whatever. The very act of writing it down, writing down what you want to remember, is going to help your memory. The real key is spread out your studying. If you have a test in three weeks, study a little bit every day. Don't try and do it the last three days. Don't try and do it in one fell swoop. Yeah. Studies have absolutely shown that the more we spread it out, the longer and the better we remember it. Well, let's talk a little bit more about your brand-new book, Master Your Memory from America's Top Expert on Study Skills. What was your primary objective in writing your book? Well, as, as you mentioned early on, I wrote a, a series of books, uh, the main one of which was How to Study. Yeah. And as... as People read that, and that's been around for, my gosh, almost 30 years. Uh, one by one, teachers, students, parents, older students would come back to me and say, you know, I could really use help with fill in the blank. Sure. And one of the ones that always came up constantly was memory. Because when you think about it, whether you went to school 30 or 40 years ago, when whether you went to school three or four days ago, uh, I suspect strongly that while you may have been taught sometimes some test-taking skills, maybe you, you were certainly taught how to write papers and how to read, it's highly unlikely that you were actually taught any memory techniques whatsoever. Yeah, that's that's why your book is very unique. And I, I love the fact that you have a, a quiz uh, in each chapter, I guess. But, uh, also, at the start, you have a 
a memory test, and at the end of the book, you have a memory test to see what the, how much you've improved over the from reading and applying the uh, the lessons. That uh, I think that's a great deal, so that you don't just read through and forget what you read. It it really brings uh, it home. Well, all of this has to be practiced. I mean, there are there are ways, obviously, that someone can remember pi to yeah. seventy thousand places, uh, and it's not remembering. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's not remembering the numbers. It's literally transferring, the, transforming the numbers into letters, making yeah. the letters into words, and making the words into a story. Oh, now, right. granted, seventy thousand. Uh, places of pi is one very darn long story, but it certainly is possible. And if you only have to remember a few chemical formulas, a few math formulas, it's very, very easy to create enough pictures to do it. And if you're a little older and all you want to do is remember your darn social security number or your driver's license number, it really is, pardon the pun, easy as pi. Yeah. <laughs> well, where should we go to preview and purchase your book, Master Your Memory? What's it's available in, in audio, uh, electronic, print, oh. your favorite local bookstore, or any of the online bookstores. Yeah, okay. And do you have a website where we can learn more about the, the book or about you? Right. or Where should we go for that? Sure, it's careerpress, C-A-R-E-E-R, press.com. Okay, and you offer a whole bunch of books on there. I know if somebody's interested in a whole variety of books, they can go to careerpress.com. Well, in conclusion, no matter how high your IQ or how smart you are at grasping new concepts, it'll all be for naught if you can't remember and apply your knowledge at critical time uh, and in critical situations. And I'm certain, like me, there are times when it really bugs you that you can't remember a simple fact that you should know like uh, who's that person that uh, is sitting across from me or what was the name of that uh, individual that I was so impressed with last month in the, in the speech and I can't even remember their name. Uh, and it's even more critical you remember facts and figures if you earn a living demonstrating or selling products or services or if you're up front of an audience giving a speech or in front of your congregation preaching a sermon. And I've had the opportunity to preview Ron Fry's book, and believe me, it's the comprehensive instructional manual that you will need to enhance your memory. It's a working manual. It's not just something you read and forget. And as Ron tells it, there's no one magic bullet, different strokes for different folks, but you can review all the memory methods that Ron Fry describes and pick those that work best for you. And thanks a million, Ron Fry, for your insights and best of success in sales of your new book. Thank you so much, Roy. Great to be with you. Thank you. For the remainder of today's program, we're going to talk about something entirely different, writing better. And you protest, I'm not an author or a professional writer. Why should I care? Well, in almost any career, volunteer effort, even socializing, it's so very essential that we know how to communicate effectively in writing. Email, blog posts, even tweets, work-related or personal, to get our opinions across, written communication to our boss, project status reports, budgets and strategic plans, speech texts for you and your boss, whatever, web content, there's all kinds of things that... uh, we need to be writing, and effective writing may be indeed be the springboard to your next promotion or advancement in your career. 
On the other hand, if you're a reluctant writer, even preparing the simplest email or tweet may be a struggle. And what if I told you that regardless of present doubts, you're only a few steps away from forceful, persuasive writing, and my next guest, Mary-Kate Mackey, is here to help coach you to success. In fact, she's written a brand-new book on the subject titled Write Better Right Now, The Reluctant Writer's Guide to Confident Communication and Self-Assured Style. And Mary-Kate Mackey is an award-winning writer, speaker, and teacher. Her book is based upon the tools and techniques developed during 14 years as a professor in the University of Oregon's School of Journalism and Communication and shared in popular writing workshops all across the U.S. And as a professional journalist, Mary-Kate's byline has appeared on over 200 articles for national magazines, newspapers, and websites. And hello, Mary-Kate, and welcome to Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age. Well, hello, Roy. Well, in a nutshell, how does your system that you describe and write better right now work to help so many become effective writers? I know well, it's, it's designed to follow one natural, uh, the natural writing progression, isn't it? Something right. like that. Exactly. It it really takes you from sort of first idea into final polish. Yeah. And uh, it, the whole point is that you can you can sort of follow along and read the whole thing in order, yeah. or you can go ahead and just simply, it's very problem-oriented. Each chapter has a problem heading it up, and then it's solved within the chapter. So you can go through and find out where you get stuck. For oh, instance, I... some people get stuck right in the beginning. It's like, oh, yeah. I cannot. <laughs> I, oh, I've got it here, but there's a gap between my idea and the actual words. The words yeah. seem to get in the way. So you could start there. But yeah. it may be that you're a tremendous procrastinator. You've written it, you've got it there, it's in your computer, and and you can't seem to get it out the door. <laughs> and so then you would go to that section of the book, which is it's it goes think, structure, edit. Yeah, I love that uh, that series. It doesn't necessarily have to be in. Uh, I know you talk about different ways that uh, writers approach that sequence, but. Uh, you obviously need to go through those three stages, whether you uh, plan, plunge, or match is your yes. three natural me- writing methods you describe. But uh, I- I'd like to talk a bit about each of these three phases in the thinking about the uh, piece you're about to write. What are the three questions that you should attempt to answer? Well, they're right in the beginning. Uh, the, the whole thing about thinking is what I discovered with my students. For instance, they were very good at uh, banging the words together. Yeah. They, were, they were adept. They'd come out of reporting. They knew what they were doing. But the thought behind it was often not clear. Yeah. So uh, going ahead right at the beginning and answering the questions for, uh, you know, what, what am I thinking about? And so the first question that is, who who am I writing for? Who cares? Yeah, that's sort of a good place to start. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, usually we're thinking about our own good idea. Yeah. But instead, if you flip it around and think about, well, you know, who am I writing for? What is, uh, what's going on? And then, of course, the second yeah. question is, what's that person's difficulty? Yeah. What's the what? problem they're trying to solve? or what? Yes. <laughs> what problem are we trying to solve there? Yeah. And then the third question, of course, is, how is what I'm going to write to you going to solve that problem? 
I like well, how you keep talking about a uh, reader ask what's in it for me, the W-I-I-F-M. Oh, the WIFM, <laughs> yes. Yeah. The WIFM is the best acronym I know, what's yeah. in it for me. Because if you can keep a high WIFM, what, uh, what I consider a really, you're going to solve this reader's problem with these words that you're communicating, that's a high WIFM. And uh, people talk about turning in, tuning in to Radio WIFM, yeah. <laughs> uh, but what's in it for me is really, really important. But it also takes the burden off of you. You yeah. don't have to be totally creative. You don't yeah. have to come up with big words. You just have to look and see. That reader is asking me what's in it for me. Yeah. And then like anything that. in your writing that doesn't fit that question, you you can take it out. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, you talk about finding focus fast, and you suggest creating a cable car sentence. What is a cable car sentence, and what purpose does it serve? Well, <laughs> it's in the chapter, oh, no, not the dreaded theme statement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the fact is, theme statements, we were taught them, I think, in most cases at the wrong time, when before we even understood sort of what that abstract thinking is about. Yeah. Uh, so all of us just hate theme statements. They're they're next to prompts as far writing prompts as far as I'm concerned in terms of hating them. So yeah. I thought, but we need them because they are the guide sentence. That's the guide that takes you through it. So I thought, yeah. what if we change that to a cable car? What if you picture it's your metaphor, but you picture this cable car going up the San Francisco street and it's yeah. moving, it's hooked on to that cable underneath yeah. and it's just moving up that hill so easily and people are getting on, people are getting off, you can get off the cable car and go in another direction. Yeah. That's what the cable car sentence does for your writing. You can load all your good ideas into the cable car, yeah. ride it up the hill if the ideas aren't working anymore, you throw those off. Yeah. You keep the ones that are good. If you get to the top of the hill and you see, whoa, wait a minute, I'm not going in the right direction here, the cable car sentence is the thing that will allow you to switch. You can change it and go in another direction. Yeah, I like the way it, uh, in my, and it's a writing category, uh, like in my blog, uh, I'm... Uh, about and then you obviously uh, about the new widget as you point or whatever the quarterly report whatever the right. subject is about and then I'm saying that and then you uh, include your slant whether you're for it or against it or what the, what yeah. you're uh, proposing in other words exactly and there's a difference always between subject and slant my students would yeah. say to me I'd say what are you writing about I said oh I'm writing about that old lady down on the corner selling the flowers yeah. okay. But but what's the slant? That's your subject, the old yeah. lady. But what's your slant on this old lady? Yeah, what's, that's What's sure. the deal? <laughs> and then I learned from a student, actually, to put that guide sentence, instead of at the top, which is usually where it would appear, it also goes away yeah. before you ever send anything out. But yeah. there it is. Instead, put it underneath your where you're writing. So you're writing down and you're putting out your first draft and you're bang, 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 and then you get stuck or you stop. And then you can see it's right there in front of you. (laughs) Oh, okay, that's what I want to say about that old lady. Well, let's turn to uh, structure of the story. You tell a necessary Uh building block of most structures is a simple story arc, but that's more for, uh, I would think, fiction or... uh, Ah, there's where you're wrong, Roy. 
Aha. Well, they, tell us they, what a story arc is then. Okay. Um, it's it's you can use it is for fiction. It comes out of fiction. We're borrowing. Okay. You're you're right there. We're borrowing it from fiction though for nonfiction. Because you can, it's an arc that rises, picture sort of half a rainbow rising up from the left side, sort of up to the top of the sky and stopping. That's where it stops, up at the top. It is just an arc. And what you can do with that arc is you can load information, real stuff, not not what you're making up, but but real facts, information. You're driving up this arc to a point. This is particularly good for visual learners. Yeah. Uh, I I do a lot in the book with different learning modalities. I know that sounds like, oh, well, that's boring. But the fact is people do learn in different ways, and so there's at least three or four different ways I approach material within the book, and one of them is the visual. So instead of making uh, those boring outlines, you know, with the Roman numerals that we were talking yeah. about, oof, oof, <laughs> yeah, what you do is you pin your information, like on your blog, You'd pin that information before you ever wrote. What's your point? The point would yeah. be at the top, and you would be rising up. You'd be driving up to that point. Yeah, I like how you start at the bottom. A problem arises, and then it gets complicated and more involved. Yep. All might be lost, but not really because. And then at the top, you show problem resolved. That would be a good way to... Uh, I guess develop that arc. Yes, and it's good for nonfiction material. I mean, you could send a report in based exactly on that arc, oh, and your boss would go, "Oh, I get it. I see what we yeah. have to do now. We yeah, got to move that, that the data so on much, this platform over here. I got it." That makes so much sense when you think about it. Well, if we're in sales and we're attempting to have our project or uh, annual budget approved by the boss, we'll need to prepare an effective pitch. And you propose a three-paragraph structure to raise our chances of making the sale. What are the three stages of an effective pitch? Well, the first one is that uh, you, you have to obviously, there is. I have a whole chapter just on copying. And I don't yeah. mean plagiarizing. I mean yeah. deconstructing what your company, your how they do their, for instance, pitches. How do they do yeah. that thing? But I give in the book a sort of generalized one which basically says you open with a hook. Maybe you open with the problem. There is a problem here. We cannot get this uh, data to transfer to a better platform, say. Maybe that's the problem. So that would be the first thing, and that would be a paragraph, very short, a couple of sentences. Yeah, that gets you upset and thinking about what's wrong. Uh, Well, it (laughs) it definitely gets your attention. Yeah. And then when you're pitching, you say, in this report, I'm going to explain... Uh, what the source of the problems are, what the, yeah. you're basically talking as if you were writing it, but it's basic, you know, tight and short. Yeah. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do yeah, that. It's a promise. Yeah, you're going to deliver there. It yeah. is, it is. The delivery, this is what I will deliver. And then the last one, in the company, usually this would be very very short, but the last one is why I should write this rather than anybody else. Yeah, instead of Susie or... Exactly. I'm the head of Bob. this. I've been following this for two months. Yeah. Whatever it is, those yeah. are the three steps. Well, the final stage of a writing progression is the edit, and we don't have time to go into great detail, but can you briefly describe the three types of editing and what each is designed to accomplish? Well, I think of them as wide shots, in movies, medium shots, and close-ups. Yeah. 
that's really it. And the wide shot, when you start to edit, is you go back to that guide sentence, you go back to the cable, you say, did I do what I said I was going to do in that first, it, did I do it in yeah. my uh, uh, first draft? The second one is you start to look at how the story is actually getting told. How is it rolling yeah. out? You look does at really the beginnings of paragraphs, the end, yeah. <laughs> yes. And then the last one is the picky details. And they're dragged, <laughs> but you can do them. Yeah, especially if you have spell check on your uh, absolutely computer, turn it on, it. and then but don't then trust also it. the grammar and all these other things we make mistakes on it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, in the final chapter of your book, you suggest if writing is not improving fast enough, we might consider setting up or joining a writing group. And we don't have time to go into detail, but what are a few of the steps to setting up a good writing group? Well, the first thing is most reluctant writers don't want to be in a group. Why would they want to be with somebody else, you know, yeah, doing this thing? Criticizing their work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But the fact is two people can make a group. You set up your goals for what you want out of the group, and it, it, every group is maybe different. But I yeah. go into detail on how to do that, how oh, to make it happen. Yeah. And then uh, you meet, and then you decide, did it happen? Did yeah. we do it? And that's how you can move forward. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little more about your brand-new book, Write Better Right Now, The Reluctant Writer's Guide to Confident Communication and Self-Assured Style. Is your book primarily written for professional or aspiring authors and journalists, or can the average working stiff or job seeker also benefit from it? Well, I think it's more written to the average working job seeker. There's great books out on writing for yeah, people who true. aspire to it. But these are for people. This book is like a flyover where yeah. you're looking at the writing process, you're reaching down, you're grabbing what you need, what you personally need, yeah. and then you're working on it from there. Oh, and true. so this is this is before those other writing books. Yeah. Well, if there was one conclusion you would like a reader to take away from your book, what would it be? Oh, wow. I think it would be that they, well, basically, that you can get better right now. Yeah, you can do it. You don't do have it, to sit in the garret and learn to write at some master's knee. You can do yeah. it. Yeah, it, 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 everyone has stories and ability within them that they just Absolutely. Uh, get rid of that reluctance and uh, Follow yeah, just, your just go for it and okay. grab these. Uh, grab what you need and leave the rest of it. I'm the only author yeah. I know who says, don't read my whole book. And not every <laughs> word is golden. It's only golden if you need it. Well, where's the best place to go to preview and purchase your book? Well, you can get. You can go to my website, uh, www.marykatemackey.com. Oh. M-A-C-K-E-Y. And yeah. if you hit the banner right at the top, it'll take you straight to Amazon. Oh, I see. Or but you can go right to Amazon, too. And it's also in local bookstores around yeah. the country. Oh, great. So that won't be any problem then. Well, uh, to conclude, in almost any career, in fact, in effective daily living in today's wired-in world, you must know how to write effectively, even if it's not part of your job description. And Mary-Kate Mackey's new book, Write Better Right Now, can provide the springboard to get you ahead in any job, project of passion, or life situation that requires writing skills. And it's not a book simply to read, as Mary-Kate pointed out. You don't just read it and put it on the shelf to gather dust. In fact, it's a step-by-step -step manual, 
and you can pick and choose those parts that really apply to you. And she has a number of participatory exercises in there that can give you good, solid techniques you need to get the job done. And I urge you to go to Amazon and look over the highly favorable customer reviews. Well, I wish I could get something like that. <laughs> they were extremely. I was really touched. <laughs> yeah, they were almost five star, and they were all five star, I think. And they said very nice things. And if you want to know how to write more effectively, Mary Kate's book is the place to go. And thanks a million, Mary Kate Mackey, for stopping by. Happy New Year and best of success with your book. Well, thank you. And that's our program for today. Tune in next week when our guest will talk about losing that final extra 15 pounds that you've been toting around all these years. On Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age. You've been listening to Middle Age Can Be Your Best Age, hosted by Roy Richards, an expert on midlife renewal and author of both A Midlife Challenge, Wake Up, and Wake Up, Captain and Crew, Restart Your Engines. You can learn more about Roy and his Middle Age Renewal Training System by visiting his website, middleagerenewal.com. 